This episode of InsureTech Insider is proudly brought to you by Deloitte. They are focused on uniting the bright ideas from InsureTech with large-scale traditional carriers and everything in between, bringing, of course, their wealth of industry experience and technology know-how into the mix, helping to drive the pace of change and transform insurance as we know it. Welcome to InsureTech Insider, coming to you live from the 11FS offices in WeWork Oldgate. I'm Sarah Kachatsky from 11FS, and in today's show, we're going to take a look at sports insurance before looking at some of the latest InsureTech news. Uh, I'm joined by uh, my co-host, Nigel Walsh, who's back once again. Afternoon. Afternoon. It is afternoon. We're recording early today. Um, and we're also joined by Toby Tabbitts from LACA. Nice to have you back, Toby. How are you today? Thanks for having me today again. Very well, thank you. You're welcome anytime. Um, so we're going to kick off with a bit of a chat about some sports insurance. Uh, so, Toby, do you want to do you want to start off by reminding us um, what it is that LACA does and kind of what your interest or um, it, well, I suppose interest is in this area? Yes, with pleasure. So there, I guess there are two angles really to it. Um, the first thing that LACA does is challenging the traditional insurance model. We say we have introduced crowd insurance, we call it, um, powered by the community, by our risk pool, our customers. Um, our first use case is cover for high-value bicycles for theft, damage, and loss. Um, a small niche to get, um, I guess, the regulator, insurance partners, and customers on board. And from here on, we branch out. Um, we have a deep interest for sports um, equipment instruments because um, people are very passionate about it. Um, so we're moving away from the commodity side of things, like an iPhone, for instance, but a bespoke um, 345K bike, which we have very frequently on our platform, is something people look very well after. And with that, the behavior changes, they take better care, and then fewer claims happened. So that's our first starting point. And um, we've been trading for about 10 months. Um, just as a reminder, how it works is that we group all cyclists together. We forego the need of upfront premiums. Instead, we split the actual cost of claims at the end of the month, plus a small fee for us, um, and split that across the risk pool. And with that, every month we send out a bill. Um, this month, a few thousand people had three claims or 30 claims. Now, please, please, please pay me back my three pounds. And with that, we are in the weak position, paying out first, collecting money afterwards. We call it payment default or credit risk as our biggest threat, um, not anymore the underwriting risk. And with that, um, we have introduced what we believe full transparency. We can show what we are charging for and, um, yeah, a hopefully better customer experience. I've always been a huge fan of Toby and the team. This, this for me, in the insurtech world, is the revolution, not the evolution. All the evolutions out there making things quicker, faster, smarter are great, but you truly are changing the way people think about insurance. Not necessarily marketing, because you've got, you've got to be able to market it in a way that people understand it, but changing the way insurance is written, which I think is absolutely fascinating. Thank you. So to... So, I mean, it sounds like what, what kind of works for you to talk about a little bit about how the model works and then we'll go into sort of more of the, the sort of back to the sort of sports element. But um, I guess what you've hit on is um, a huge trend in cycling. So there's a lot more people cycling now than there were maybe 10 years ago. And the people who are cycling are more passionate. And presumably that that's key to how your model works, that, that passion. Um, do you, you know... Is, is this? Did you choose cycling because it was a commodity to start with, or did you see that trend for the passion and then sort of go, ah, okay, we might have a, a new idea here? So when we started out, we had to find um, a product that works well for us um, in the team, but also where there's a trend. And clearly, as you mentioned, 
It's a growing market. Um, we say rails uh, um, sales going up year after year. And um, there's obviously also a saying that cycling has overtaken golf as a recreational sport. Um, for, a certain, for a certain demographic. A hundred percent. I could not agree more. I don't know anyone who plays golf anymore. In fact, a very small few, but everyone is a mammal. A Men and women. So mammal is middle-aged men in lycra. I was so trying hard you, not to use you, that phrase. You have to now use the word mammal from here on in. Not a hope in hell. on the BBC, so it's definitely a real thing. But to be fair, there are as many women cycling as there are men these days as well, which is really exciting to see. Absolutely. And um, what is quite exciting for us as well, that's a, a, a clear trend. And we're actually promoting that actively to get more women into cycling and promoting that actively. A couple of really cool initiatives um, I think insurance nowadays has to be more than providing a pure insurance experience. Um, we are trying actively to engage with the community, creating content, um, being part of events, sponsoring them, and even organizing them. And there's a couple of very cool collaborations coming out, um, um, especially on women in cycling. So to talk a little bit um, about events then, I, I believe you do sort of separate policies for people who, who race competitively. Is that true? Can you, can you tell us about that? So at the moment, it's a um, one-stop shop, so to speak. We cover for all our cyclists um, in the same way. Um, as you can imagine, as with any niche, you can break it out into further sub-niches and personas and types. Um, in cycling, for instance, that is not just the, the road biker, that is the mountain biker, that is the e-biker, um, which is um, growing heavily in the UK um, an interesting trend for us is also cargo bikes, um, where you um, cater um, food out or um, or bring your kids to the to the to the grip. So that's also something that's been that's been neglected. Um, smaller volumes, but you can grab um, and, and market share and build a name there. So that's quite exciting for us. I um, remember the old-fashioned bikes with the ice cream things on the front, which are always quite fun because you've got ice cream in the front. More importantly, so <laughs> <laughs> very good. Um, and I guess it's. Um, Sportives and races are part of um, a big part of the road um, biker's life. Um, training for it on a Sunday morning, going out early. Um, very ambitious people in our risk pool, and we're trying to cater for them. So we say um, up to a certain level of, of racing is fine. Um, clearly, the risk increases, and we say mitigate it in other places where we then, for instance, verify the customer through platforms like Strava, which is a um, a cycling platform where we can um, link into and with that mitigate the enhanced risk which another customer might not have. So using using sort of uh, other technologies as well, so geolocation, connectivity, um, internet of things. I mean, Strava's an app, right? You can use it for running and things as well. So it, is that is that like an open API or do you have to sign a partnership with them? It's an API. It's an API and with consent from customers, we can tap the, the, data, the database and um, yeah, provide a better experience. What about if somebody? So I'm just thinking about my friend's husband who takes his bicycle to cycle up the Pyrenees. Do you cover? <laughs> do you cover people abroad as well? Or? We do. Okay, we do. <laughs> because that's one of the things that um, is interesting as well. So it's something we can talk about a little bit later on specifically, but particularly with cycling as well. I guess a lot of people get it as part of a travel package, a travel insurance package. Um, what you're saying that your your product is more specialised than that. Presumably, you you can tailor it down to a better. Uh, uh, more niche demographic. So since we started from scratch, we had a big opportunity to go out and not just have dozens, but almost hundreds of customer interviews to see what um, customers really care for and need and to build a bespoke product. Now, obviously, we are an insurance intermediary that is still underwritten by our partner, Zurich Insurance Group. So we also had to find a way how it fits into their more traditional underwriting rules. And um, that's been and a process with us. We build up a lot of trust over the last couple of months and um, getting better by the day. 
it's interesting because it, so Strava for me is way more than an app. It's been around for such a long time. It's almost a way of life. And you used to get in from a run or a cycle, and the first thing you do is get unchanged and showered, wherever else. The first thing people these do these days is get in and upload Strava and look at the stats and compare the results. It really is. You know, people talk about if it's not on Strava, it didn't happen, and it gets into such a interesting way of life. I've done a whole bunch of events over the last couple of years, whether it's cycling from London to Paris a number of times in different ways or over the Alps and stuff. Do you not then start to get things like concentration risk? If you've got 450 people cycling uh, over a three-day event from London to Paris and they've all got an average bike value of, say, three or £4,000, how do you then cope or have you come across how you will cope for that sort of concentration risk with one event all going in the same direction at the same time? Yeah, so that's an interesting one. Clearly, um, in our early days, we don't have that amount of data yet. And it'll be clearly interesting to see how that plays out. Um, I should know that whilst we share the actual cost of claims at the end of the month, um, there is a cap in place to protect customers on the on outliers. So if every single bike gets stolen, customers wouldn't pay more than with the advertised cap provided by Zurich. Yeah. Everyone, everything above would be consumed by by insurance partner. Um, I would I would be very surprised. It would be very interesting to see um, the the patterns. Um, um, collateral damage, for instance, if really 100 bikes in one go get damaged, um, usually it's quite distributed. And with Strava, for instance, we can actually look through our risk pool, where do people cycle? And we've actually done a really cool exercise recently. You can tap in um, through Strava to see the patterns and illuminate a map almost where our risk pool really is cycling. And it's a mix um, all across the UK Northern Fantastic. Europe, Ireland. It looks really, really cool. Hang on. Isn't this how they found that secret US Army base? Because all the troops were using Strava and running around a, a base somewhere in Iran. I swear. Not, I it is, you're right. It's not just that, actually. There was also an issue a while back about expensive bikes going missing as a result of people logging in. And now if you go into Strava, they have an ability to set a, a ring fence zone from your start and stop point so they don't actually know the exact location of your start point. The last thing you want to do is advertise you've got a beautiful S-Works or Cervelo bike that I started here and stopped there and by the way i work from nine to five there's a bike waiting for you to go and collect mr thief thank you very much so they are getting around these sorts of things their data is also used to do traffic planning in cities so they've actually opened up their api so this is how people commute whether they're running um, whether they're cycling or whatever else through the cities and by clicking a button on the on the app for your workout that says commute they can actually work out where people's uh, direction of travel as well which is really interesting and to add to that, there was recently an article in Cycling Weekly, actually, that described um, how Strava might lead thieves to your doorstep. And if you have not switched on that uh, that buffer zone, um, which could be quite dangerous. So, And it was quite an interesting exercise for us. We turned this around and, and created a tool within a matter of days where people could log in with their Strava credentials and see their privacy settings um, if they actually leading thieves to the doorstep or not. And we rolled that out on the fly very quickly with some recommendations how to switch it off. Um, not too intrusive, but yet with some value add. And that's actually a nice example how we can very quickly... You um, almost need to charge people an extra premium for leaving it on, or for not, for not turning it on. Okay? If you don't turn this on, it's an extra amount of money per month for being a bit too obvious. So at the risk of... Um, we're getting a little bit into a love letter to Strava here. Um, are there any kind of other technologies that you're using, Toby? Are there, are there anything else that you can connect into to help you price that risk? Um, yes, absolutely. So there's, so there's two folds, right? There's the, the traditional more objective risk parameters and the, the one and in home insurance traditionally is the underwriting by the postcode, which we believe is not fit for purpose any longer. If you live in a good area, but never lock your bike, you're worse risk to me than living the other way around in a bad area, taking very good care. So we are actually um, have a very strong behavioral risk play 
show me that you are an avid cyclist by, you know, Strava again, or for instance, other social media where you post, um, take a couple of, um, watch a couple of trailers, right? Um, one interesting stat is the risk of having your bike nicked in a semi-private car park is five times higher on the street. And that's a fact in the UK um, because the thieves have more, more time to crack the lock. So we want to educate our customers along the way um, and really help them object, um, subjectively to become better risks. Um, on the outset, clearly there is a new trend um, around Internet of Things, of course. Um, GPS trackers becoming a big thing. Um, it will be very interesting to see when you can increase battery life for these things to fit it into the saddle or the tube and immediately offer a big discount to customers, right? They used to be quite bulky or uh, the battery didn't last too long. And we see now a trend where this actually could really help um, driving prices down. I mean, I think it's um, the Internet of Things is, comes up in every single podcast we do. But I think it feels particularly, particularly GPS trackers feel incredibly relevant for, for all areas of sports, actually. Um, and you said that, though, just to add also the question more broadly, why sports insurance? Um, and a big reason is um, very often home insurance covers your bike at home for theft. Um, in reality, in our risk pool with early indicators, um, roughly less than 10 percent with us, it's actually theft and 90% plus actually damage, right? So okay. clearly it would mitigate a certain target or customer group, um, but um, we still see the value add is for us um, helping customers when they crash in a race or without a race and get them back on the saddle quickly. The, the, the thing with, sorry, the thing with home insurance policies, I did one recently, was it doesn't cover you for anything over £1,000. So they ask you for, to limit the items. So I just don't think, and it's been like this for donkey's years, uh, I don't know how... Um, how many folks that will have a bicycle of, a, of the sort of the bikes that you're, you're, you're insuring will then sit there and go, I've, I've, I've had my bike as a named item to then bring it up accordingly. And then it's comparing that to wherever is either a, a lacquer or my home insurance provider or whatever else. But it just feels like it's a catch-all for your average bike that you go and buy. But most of the mammals or it's family word, I'm not sure it is. But most of the folks out there cycling expensive bikes are way, way more than a thousand pounds. If not, you have coined the term now. <laughs> um, let's is, not start that quite interesting. Not. so uh, clearly that, that's a big topic we're playing on right our, our product started with a thousand pounds plus onwards for that fact because you have to list the item on top mm -hmm. um, the value is one topic the second one is clearly the, the amount of cover right um, we have seen very nasty things um, one home insurance policy the bike is only covered in a five miles radius from home only <laughs> Right. So if you cycle to the park and back. Quite possibly. Or, yeah. Maybe it's the pup bike I've insurance, right? I've done 75 laps of this one <laughs> five-mile route. So, so you see how this is not fit for purpose, right? Or the, um, yeah, there are many other examples like that. And excess is the other one. If you read a high excess um, of £1,000, £750, and the bike is only worth um, 1000 you won't get much back, right? So that is the, the, the rationale for having dedicated cover that really cares and caters for your, for your sport. So this, so this goes back to about being passionate about what you're interested in. And when I was in the States last um, talking or listening to a chap called, uh, or sorry, listening to a group called Haggerty Insurance, they're passionate about sports cars, or specifically classic sports cars. And they do all the value-add services and the collaborations around it, whether it's rebuilding a Hemi engine or whatever else. They don't do home insurance. They don't do travel insurance. They do classic car insurance. And they have all the things around it. That means, actually, I know these guys really care about bikes. Uh, you can argue to say whether it's they're bought by many guys that have got groups, for example, that are focused on, you know, we've got a new cat. It's a, you know, is it a moggy? Is it a pedigree or whatever it might be? Um, and people who care about things that are specific to what they want to actually cover. 
So, I mean, I, I, just to pick up on that point, um, I, I don't, this is not asking you to give away any state secrets, Toby, but are there any other areas, particularly in sports, that you think that your model might apply to? Um, and if there are any, if you can tell us, don't worry if you can't, <laughs> if there's anything you're looking at. Um, we're doing a whole range of research at the moment. Um, it took us a while um, to get a license, to get the platform up and running, to find partners and regulators um, to convince them. But I think now is the time that we've proven that the product works. Um, just a fun fact, I think the last 10 months since we are trading, customers have saved roughly 70% compared to market. So that's a nice success story. And with that, we are now starting to branch out to other products. And we inherently have a deep interest for products that are community-oriented, where people have a passion behind it, where they need an instrument for it. Um, so any sports instrument um, is fair game, whether it's rowing golfing, or... fishing, rowing, canoeing, water sports in general. They all cost a fortune to buy, right? No matter what you're out there doing, it costs a fortune. I've got a, one of our neighbours has got a canoe on her roof half the time. I think, my God, I think she's damaged her car more than the canoe every time she puts the damn thing on top. But, but there we are. So it's... it's yeah. And, and, and very quickly, the conversation goes from, you know, when we say we go from, from cycling to water sports, the next question is, but when will you go to mass markets, right? And the honest answer is, why should I? Um, we are doing a good job, I think, um, on niches. And if you add enough niches and start cross-selling, that will be um, enough crumbs for, for a startup like us um, to grow big and, and, and profitable at some point. Brilliant. Well, on that note, I'm going to move on to the news. And the first story in the news this week is actually the evolution of winter sports cover. So um, something else that you might think about. Um, so the, this article comes from the, and this is brilliant, the International Travel and Health Insurance Journal, which I'm not subscribed to yet, but I feel like I should. What's the news show that does on TV? Is it Have I Got News For You? Or when they come up with a really random news journal? Well, a niche news journal, which I thought applied to our subject matter today. Um, so basically, what the, the UK government has published some statistics that said, between 2012 and 2016, there were 118 hospitalizations of British skiers and snowboarders in Europe and 58 deaths. Um, when it comes to theft, uh, some recent research from this from the Ski Club of Great Britain found that theft and loss of snow sports equipment, which is not cheap, um, has affected one in eight winter holidaymakers. So the point that this article makes is that many winter sports policies still have exclusions whereby an insurer doesn't provide cover for certain activities. Some of these are kind of things you'd, you'd, a lot of skiers would do. So off-piece skiing when not accompanied by a fully qualified ski instructor. A lot of people do do that. Um, but there are also, um, there's a comment here from uh, a guy called Steve Howard, who works for TIFF Group. And he said, um, more and more of ski resorts are offering activities like ski biking which we'll go into in a minute. Um, but many of the standard policies which are available to the consumer only offer c extra cover for this type of activity if it's purchased in addition. So that kind of not fit for purpose policy again. So the interesting point is that um, a lot of people don't understand. So they think they've got ski insurance and then they go to a ski resort and they try something new offered by that resort and, and they're not actually covered for it. Um, so this sounds like this is a huge gap in the market to I, me. I could not agree more. I mean, I'm I'm not a skier and probably because I'd end up with one of those people in the hospital if I did try it. I have zero balance. Um, but you can see these things quite quickly. And when you look at travel insurance, either single uh, trip or multi-trip, you see the exclusions before you see anything else. And so I've scuba dived in the past. I'm not a scuba diver, but I've tried it a few times. And by default, they go, we exclude scuba diving. You think, well, what's the point of having it in the first place? So it feels like it's capturing the basics, but not the things you want to do when you go on a holiday destination to try new things and it's it goes back to toby's point about not being fit for purpose if you're going to a ski resort it should almost say and we've covered you for 90 percent of the things that you might try as an intermediate or average tourist going on a skiing holiday it feels like we are as an industry missing the trick or as you said um creating a whole new opportunity 
Yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely an opportunity for, for specific sports. So they mentioned here kind of like, uh, t- you know, paragliding or heli skiing, which are things that more people are doing. Yeah. Um, I think ski biking, that might be one for you, Toby, in a couple of years. If anyone doesn't know what that is, go and Google it. It looks terrifying. Um, but I think it's the, the kind of the, the ground popularity, but at the same time, the idea that I want to be able, I'm so used to being able to doing something on demand. I want to be able to, when I get to my ski resort and they're like, by the way, you know, what a great idea to be able to go to a ski resort and have download an app and go like, I'm going to cover myself for ski biking today or paragliding. Isn't that pain in the backside? Because you could sit there. I mean, you look at people on the, on the beach going paragliding. You think, oh, that's really cool. I you don't sit there going, oh, let me just download in a foreign country on super data charges to go and get an app to turn on paragliding Maybe. for that point in time. But how do you know what you want to do if you don't know it exists till you get there? It's all on the interweb. <laughs> it all tells you in advance what you... We've got our holiday book for next year. We tell you exactly what we're doing almost every night. Uh Oh, God, Nigel, that Sorry. says a lot more about you than it yeah. does about insurance. Um, presumably, Toby, snow sports is something that would work as well with your model. Um, yeah, I love it. I think it's um, it's a really good one that could work very well in our, in our model. And you can have different subgroups, again, for the um, ski bikers or bike skiers, as you want to put it. And, um, yeah, I guess skiing is often mentioned as one of the examples for geofencing. Um, you kind of drive into an area with mountains, would you like to switch on XYZ? Um, or leaving the country flying to an um, Austria, for instance, lends itself to it. Um, very interesting place here, for sure. Mm. I mean, you have to they take out the exceptions, I think. Uh, I'm not sure everyone's into the jumping out of a helicopter mode, although I have friends that do it. It looks really cool. But again, I'd probably be one of the 59 in that case. Um, let's try and avoid that one. Uh, but there has to be a limit that says we'll get you for most things. So ski bikes seem to be quite common or more common these days, whereas jumping out of the helicopter must, must be the small 1%. Yeah, I mean, there's there's obviously, as Toby said, there's kind of there's niches, and every niche you go into gets more and more niche, and then you end up with a, a group of one. Um, that you know, Tom Cruise who wants to learn to fly a helicopter at a snowy mountain in two weeks by himself. I mean, Tom Cruise now has to insure his own movies because nobody else will insure him. I think he can afford to do that. Yeah, Although, yeah. don't watch the YouTube video of him breaking his foot on on the last Mission Impossible because it's horrific. Absolutely horrific. I'm going to move us on from insuring Tom Cruise. I think that's another show. Um, <laughs> My wife will come to that one very happily, <laughs> as long as Tom Cruise is here. Um, so the second story, it's a company called Ethos, which has raised £35 million. Um, it's a nice little nice little raise. Um, it's a life insure tech based out of the States. But what's interesting to, um, to me is the kind of range of investors they've got. So they've got Axel, they've got Google Ventures, Sequoia Capital, you know, all, all big names you, you, you see you know, investing in, in startups in the States and a company called Arrive, which is a subsidiary of Rock Nation, which would be Jay-Z's record label. So the interesting thing about um, Ethos, aside from, you know, Jay-Z being involved, um, is that it describes itself as a new kind of life insurance that's built for people who do not have time for fine print, um, which is interesting. Uh, the company is licensed in 49 states. It's already processed a load of applications. Um Aside from Jay-Z, the life insurance is getting a lot of interest and a lot of money across both Europe and, and the US, actually. Yeah, it's definitely, on the, it's definitely on the uptick. It's picked up. We had the biggest deal last year, I think it was with Guardian, with $175 million or or thereabouts, I think, here in the UK. But life insurance um, in tech generally seems to be on the uptick about how we then now engage customers and do things in a slightly different way. So it's exciting to see. Although I'm a little bit in two minds about the, for those folks that haven't got time for fine print, it's like, well, 
this is kind of life insurance. This isn't bike insurance. No disrespect, Toby, or anything else. This is your life you're talking about. Um, LV did a survey a couple of years back that said we actually spend more time looking at our summer holiday than we look at our pensions and life insurance, which is a really... Sounds like you do if you've got every night booked for next year. I have a very year. efficient wife who's uh, the whole thing planned out so she can take photographs. So it's a different conversation. Um, but, but people spend more time on this than they do anything else, which is a really, uh, a really worrying thing. Are we making the problem worse and taking away the levels of education people need to have by making it so simple? So I'm all for simplicity, but not dumbing it down to such a level that makes it, I've bought life insurance and all the other assumptions are there by default. So. Well, it's rather the opposite of what of what Toby's model's been describing. You end up with one policy fits all, but actually doesn't fit anybody. So rather than going for a group who are particularly interested, you know, not even getting down the lines of a group who are particularly interested in one thing or have a particular type of lifestyle, it's, yeah, well, you know, it's life insurance. We'll make it as easy, as simple as possible and as broad as possible. And then actually it, it doesn't actually apply to anybody. Um, Maybe just one point from yeah. the insurtech world in general. It's really great to see how the industry, a very young phenomenon, is growing up and maturing. We're now seeing series Bs and Cs. And um, the former banker in me, comparable transactions is inherently um, important and, and great to point towards. Um, clearly, the US is leading the way in terms of amount of capital raised and maturity, um, maybe less on innovation in my personal um, views. But it's, it's great to see, right? Because we are all growing up um, at the same time in parallel and, um, well, very best. And thanks, great, and get another great proof point. Well, yeah, I mean, that, that is interesting to me. On, on a serious note with this um, the, the Arrive uh, VC company, surely the more money that comes from the more variety of the, uh, the bigger the variety of sources, the better. So you don't actually, it doesn't have to be, a, uh, you know, a historic legacy VC firm that's, that's investing. If, you, if somebody understands your model and believes in it, then it doesn't really matter where the money comes from, I guess. Interestingly, they talk about in the in the release they uh, a ten minute application compared to the weeks it takes through more traditional methods. Well, I think that's the state of affairs between the US and the UK. I can do a medical application whenever else in the UK in minutes, not weeks. So it doesn't necessarily require that. They also say by cutting paper, always good. I think we should be digital, digital, digital in my mind. Uh, predictive analytics, well, no surprise there, and cutting things like medical exams. So, again, we don't necessarily need them all the time here in the UK. It depends on the type of cover that you get. So I just worry about the perception of what we're selling and what actually comes out the other end of it. Um, on the flip side, Toby, to your point, you know, the, the research that we did a while back on investment, I think 2017 was an absolute peak in terms of the money that was raised in InsurTech at $1.8 uh, globally. I think $127 million was UK. Uh, and the second, the first half this year, I think, is on track to be slower than it was last year. So we feel that it's stalling a little bit, but it's going more into uh, second and third rounds rather than, uh, than seed. So it's interesting to see the market mature. And I think to add to that, I think there's a big mission and ambition in the UK to raise awareness. Um, I think we are still lacking um, the, the early stage capital by far. And the numbers you quoted probably... We'll see quite a few outliers um, where all of a sudden a 10, 20, 30, 50 million um, transaction um, takes up um, the huge chunk of it. Mm -hmm. So I think um, any any means um, of additional capital um, to the European market, the UK market will help us um, catching up with the US. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's, uh, we're going to see, you know, we said before, the insurtech industry is slightly behind the broader fintech industry. So I think we, we've seen similar things there. Um, but, you know, B's and C rounds are always good. 
Um, we're going to move on to a story which is a subject very close to Nigel's heart, cyber insurance. Uh, so Slice Labs have partnered with AXA XL uh, to provide... Uh, well, So Slice Lab provides on-demand insurance for a huge range of industries. Um, and they are providing the platform for AXA XL's new cyber insurance policy. So it's specifically designed for small and medium-sized businesses. Um, it c- provides the US... It's only in the US for now, with comprehensive cyber insurance protection along with real time intelligence to proactively counteract cyber risks. Uh, it's designed for companies under 20 million in annual revenue, um, offers limits from 250K up to $3 million. Um, the interesting, just sort of an interesting side note, just says customers can uh, acquire policies and submit claims through a bot. What, what I'm not quite sure what that means. I'd be intrigued to see it when we get the user journey up there. Um, the interesting thing for me as well is the policy not only covers what would, you know, how to recompense yourself, but also how to recommend your customers. So there's some first-party mitigation costs in there, some notification, credit monitoring, data recovery, reputation management, all that other stuff, which actually is what's more likely to cost you money in a cyber breach than actually fixing your tech. Uh, in my limited experience. I mean, these, um, these guys, are, so congrats to Tim, uh, Atiyah and the team at Slice. It's, it's, a, it's a great to see them partnering with, uh, with AXA or XL. And equally, congrats to Lauren Tennant-Pollock and John Coletti over at AXA. Um, some, some great stuff that they're doing here. They've picked on two areas that are really important. One, cyber, as you mentioned, um, Sarah, it's, it's, it's a really hot topic now. But equally, as you guys launched last week, I guess now, with the new bank in the UK, SMB is this untapped market that everyone's going after in a really, really interesting way to find out how we can serve that market through uh, better means, whether it's digital technology, whether it's engaging with the right products or a combination of the two. And you talk about uh, the bot that they're using. Um, bots have gone, or chatbots or whatever you want to call them have gone up and down in popularity over the last um, uh, couple of years. There's actually a really funny debate going on between Lemonade and uh, State Farm, I think, if you've seen the adverts on TV and how they're all uh, fighting each other. Um, but there's a video of the... You mean virtually fighting each other, right? The bots are fighting are, each other. No, there's actually a campaign. Um, so let me get this right. So State Farm, came out, State Farm came out with an advert saying bots are all the wrong thing with a video almost attacking new technology firms using bots and they're going agents of the future. Lemonade said, well, how is it? Bots of the future. There was a big, huge debate about what was going on. And there's a, everyone's up in, all, up in arms going, oh, look at what's going on. There's a fight. Whatever. It's a bit of fun. But if you look at uh, the Slice website, I'm sure you'll see it. I think they've got an example of the bot working and how you actually engage for both acquisition and claims process. So it's really interesting to see. Um, but you'll see more and more of this collaboration between startup and incumbent to get their product to market quickly. And that's the thing that they're solving. Well, I think the interesting thing for me when we're talking about the maturation of the insurance and insurtech markets is that this is a proper partnership. So Slice is acting as a supplier. It's an integral part of this new product. It's not just, which we see a lot of, is, oh, well, XL has invested in Slice would be the other way or the most the more common headline, I suppose. And that, that doesn't tell you a great deal to start with. They actually um, have invested in them as well. Well, no, no, I know. But I, I know. But my point being that this is actually it, something has come off that investment. It's a deeper engagement and a new product has come off the back of it that benefits both parties. So yeah. That's, that's, a, that's a proper maturation point. Yeah, totally agree. And I think the pl- platforms fall into so platform play is a really interesting spot right now in the insurance and insure tech. There's three types of platforms in our minds that we that we work to. 
platform type one is the new style of style of platform that does a pure policy or claims type stuff. Platform type two is someone that's got paper and can write business. So in the likes of Slice's example to the regulated the states. And platform type three is someone like Toby who's gone out and built his own technology or Dylan who was on from social who've built their own technology that does something else at the moment but, but could be repurposed. If I went to Toby and said, hey, how do you fancy doing motor insurance? After pulling him off the ceiling, he might go, that's not a bad idea. I can do it and the platform can do that sort of stuff. So platforms are falling into into three broad categories and working out whether we're replacing legacy, whether we're getting to market or whether we're going to use your technology to do something very different is really interesting right now. That was exactly the point I was going to make. Again, translating from the InsurTech um, scene more or less, um, I think they started out with an Airbnb on-demand kind of product and now you see how um, with the tech they created, repurposed that um, to work with different partners and generate fee-based income, I reckon. Um, and that's a really interesting one, right? You put your product into the shopping window and some people like what they see and, and want to work with you. And um, that's exactly where we are at. Um, we are UK-based at the moment. We have one product at the moment, and yet we do get a lot of inbounds these days. Can we not um, repurpose your platform or can we go to different countries together? So the whole B2B2C approach is very, very interesting. And we, in turn, also speak to a handful of insurers to see how could we work together in maybe countries where we would have not gone directly on our own. Yeah, and I think it's, um, you know, t to that point, it's you can do both, right? There's no, you don't have to stop offering your cycle insurance product to, at the same time, you know, partner with somebody else who can use your platform. And the more revenue streams a small business or a startup business has, the, the better everybody's going to feel about it, I think. But you, you do go to a stage of maturity. So I look at Toby, I look at Ed at Flock, or those sorts of places to go, our primary focus today is drone insurance or cycle insurance. Once you've reached a maturity in that individual market, then, ha then it is, how do we go to the next stage? Do we open up our APIs as Slice have done or Lemon? aid have done do we put a new product on the market or what is it we have to do go and do the problem is now the problem is six nine twelve thirty six months time when we sit there and we go god we've got 35 products we haven't got all these things managed in a simple way you end up in a new world of old legacy because it's all insurtechs or fintechs all humbled together to make something work well, we're not there yet. Let's let's yet. keep let's keep being excited for the time business. Uh, time being, totally agree. Um, and talking about going to new places, uh, our final story today is that Munich Re has partnered Plug and Play in China. So Plug and Play is a Silicon Valley based accelerator. Um, I believe Munich Re's been working with them in the states, um, and they are now working or collaborating with in emerging insurtech startups in China. So um, the Plug and Play has recently announced its first batch of sixteen insurtech startups in China. Apparently, over five hundred firms have applied. Um, Christoph Hock, I'm sure I'm saying that wrong, um, who is the chief executive of Greater China for Munich Re, added that this is the latest milestone in efforts to lead innovation and development across our business in China. Uh, in 2015, we set up Munich Re's first innovation lab in Beijing, followed by the establishment of Tao Limited, our dedicated insurance solutions development hub. Um, I mean, there's a couple of things to pick apart here. One is, uh, is Is there space in China for, for foreign players? Um, secondly, you know, what is attractive about Asia to, to, to companies that have formed elsewhere? Um, and the third one, you know, given that plug and play is working with Chinese startups, are we going to see some of them moving back the other way? Um, I, I couldn't agree more. This for me is about deployment of reinsurance capital to different parts of the world in a really interesting, in a really interesting way. Plug and Play have been around for a long time. Speak to the team, uh, Ali and, and folks over in Silicon Valley, or the folks they've opened, they've got a lab or a accelerator in Germany. There's talks about other ones throughout Europe. I think it's a really smart move right now. If you just look at the Zongans and Pingans of the world and uh, the Chinese market in general, 
there is innovation coming out of there at scale and at pace. And if you can fund it in the right way, then why not bring it through both to either Europe or places like India and elsewhere? But does that leave any space for European insurtech players to go the other way? Do you think there's any space in Asia for, for European or US insurtech companies? I think so. I think it's a great opportunity. It depends on the product, the expertise that you build up and the repeatability or applicability in each of those territories. And what I mean by that is um, the repeatability is can we just lift and shift something from what we do in the UK and apply it to China? I mean, bike insurance in China, who I can't remember who sung the song, nine million bicycles or six million bicycles. It's not Adele, is it? It's I come back to me. Um, I have literally it, no idea. There's <laughs> definitely a song about millions of bicycles in China. Um, but, but again, that may not work in the same way that it works here. Um, but what is it that we've got that we've used through our capability and maturity? Because I still firmly maintain that the UK is the most mature in short tech market in terms of where we are, our product development and everything else, while the US has got the scale and investment, but China and, and Asia more broadly is actually fast approaching. Uh, we've got a million people as a pilot rather than 100k or 30k people. Um, so what they can do and where they can get to quite quickly is actually quite interesting. And I think you really need to distinguish between um, China and Asia. Um, it's almost saying Western world versus Asia. And um, I think the markets are very, very different. And I think um, China is, is a very interesting one from, from a scale perspective, but then also from regulatory challenges and coming in outside in. Um, probably not a good idea without um, either very, very deep pockets or very strong partners on the ground. But that's a very good point because um, and one, one that I was kind of hoping we'd pick up is that people go Asia and instantly go China. But actually, there's an awful lot yes. more of the world that falls into that category. I mean, even even you look at Australia, New Zealand, places like that would fall under that category as well. And, and each of the each of these countries in, on their own have their own insure tech hubs or accelerators or uh, things that they're doing with the incumbents. Uh, in each of those big cities right now going, look, we've got, we found 25 or 100 startups. What are they doing for our local market? That's actually slightly different from somewhere else. We will, we, I still believe we'll see a level of consolidation over the next couple of years. And I think a very good time to also mention that Laka is currently exploring Asia. Um, we are setting up shop in Malaysia at the very moment. Um, we've been vocal about us being part of um, an accelerator program called um, Supercharger, FinTech Supercharger out of Kuala Lumpur. Um, so we have great support there on the ground. Our investors in our seed round is an insurance company called Tune Protect Group, um, who are affiliated with Airline Air Asia. So there are a lot of things we can only wish for in the UK, whether it's distribution, insurance partnerships, and also to mention a very, very vibrant um, insurtech scene um, supported by the regulator Bank Negara with its own fintech sandbox. Um, so I think they deserve a lot more spotlight and they, or attention than they probably get at the moment. And fast as a young startup, um, it's fantastic to play in a, in a, in a market like that. But you're, you, you've got to a point where, you, where the maturity exists in the UK. You've learned stuff. You've cut your teeth with the sandbox here in the UK. And you can always accelerate the accelerator process through uh, Malaysia, as an example. So great to see. Well done. Brilliant. And on that high note, I'm going to wrap up our discussion. The answer to the question, by the way, is Katie Melua, 9 million bicycles, 2008. Go listen. I'm now going to wrap up our discussion. Thank you so much to everyone. Um, where can listeners find out more about you, Toby? Do you have a website, a Twitter handle? We do have a website, laka.co.uk, a very, very active Instagram account and other social medias. Um, I'm easily found on LinkedIn to buy us topics. Perfect. How about you, Nigel? You can find me on Twitter making too much noise on Nigel Walsh. <laughs> um, and you can find me on Twitter at Sarah Kashansky. 
So that wraps up another InsureTech Insider. Thank you so much to Toby and to Nigel for joining me today. As always, you can find the show on Twitter at InsTech Insiders. And if you like what you've heard this week, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and please leave us a review on iTunes. If you have any suggestions or feedback, please reach out on Twitter or email podcasts at 11fs.com. <laughs>